intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Thank you very much, Hannah. And uh, thank you, Vic, as well, for leading us so movingly uh, in our prayers. And uh, yeah, to any of you who've been on the weekend away, um, welcome back. I guess probably most who were on the young adult weekend away um, have uh, taken the evening off. But I uh, hope it's been a, a great time. We've been praying for you. I guess the uh, theme of chaos uh, feels quite resonant for us at the moment, doesn't it? Life feels rather chaotic. We've just been reflecting on war in Europe, and I guess along with that comes the sense of unstable heads controlling arsenals of nuclear weapons and the chaos that can unleash. And then there's the cost of living crisis, and COVID infections are on the rise again. And so it goes on, chaos of lots of sorts, and perhaps in our individual lives as well, there can be a sense of chaos. Certainly for Alison and I at the moment, uh, it is a turbulent time as we prepare to move on from a bar this summer, and uh, I guess there's some turbulence for the church in that as well. There's, there's a lot of chaos of different sorts, chaos which brings stress and uncertainty. Now, of course, not all chaos is bad. Bob Dylan once described chaos as his friend. And chaos is often the, the cradle of invention and innovation. So we shouldn't think all chaos is bad. The actor Steve Martin, I think, put it about right when he said, chaos in the midst of chaos isn't funny, but chaos in the midst of order is. But just that phrase, chaos in the midst of chaos, that's the really damaging kind of chaos, isn't it? What Meryl Streep meant when she said, it's amazing how easily people are led into fury and chaos. Unhappy people with guns are not going to make this country great. Rather prescient words. Go back further, Napoleon, the battlefield is a scene of constant chaos. Now, just Hold those different phrases there. Chaos in the midst of chaos. Fury and chaos. Constant chaos. Where the only thing that isn't chaotic is the presence of chaos. Civilizations don't do well with that kind of chaos. And frankly, neither, neither do we as individuals. Those times when everything is chaotic. Unrelenting chaos. And it feels like we're in some kind of free fall. Uh, 
Maybe that's never happened to you, and if it hasn't ever happened to you, then I'm very glad for you. But it probably will. (laughs) We can all be pretty sure that at some point in life, it is going to feel like the, the waters of chaos are overwhelming us. And when it does, we need to know how we're going to weather that storm. The Bible, as you probably know, was written out of the Hebrew uh, worldview and mindset. And within that Hebrew worldview and mindset, one of the favorite images for that kind of negative chaos, that chaos within chaos, that unrelenting chaos, one of the favorite images for that was the, uh, the raging waters of a rough sea. And of course, that's the image at the heart of tonight's passage. Verse 17, the disciples got into a boat set across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet dawned them, uh, joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough, a rough sea. Rough seas on, interestingly, a dark, stormy night, often in John's Gospel. Darkness is metaphorical as well as, uh, as, well as real, symbolizing the presence of chaos, disorder, and evil. But just before we get too carried away with this idea of a storm on the sea, let's just have a quick reality check about exactly where all this was taking place. We're talking here about what is, frankly, the moderately sized freshwater lake that the Bible calls the Sea of Galilee. Can we really believe that in such a context there would be this terrifying storm that indicated such chaos? Well, maybe it wasn't quite a storm as we would imagine a storm after the uh, storm Eunice hit our coasts recently. But let me just tell you a few things to put this in a little bit of historical context. The Sea of Galilee is in the Jordan Rift Valley, and it lies about 200 meters below sea level. It's warm, therefore. But it's surrounded by hills. And that combination of the low lake surrounded by the high hills means that it is known to be prone to sudden and violent winds when cold air from the mountains rushes down, colliding with the warm air rising from the low lake. So actually, this isn't quite as implausible as it seems. Add to that the fact that the Hebrews themselves were not generally a seafaring people. So perhaps it didn't kind of take quite so much for them to be terrified by a storm as it might take for Brits who've been kind of running the Navy for a long time. But then thirdly, up on the screen here in a moment, we've got, here we are, here's a picture of a fishing boat dug out of the sand from the edge of the Sea of Galilee in 1986. But It's been carbon dated to around the time of Jesus. And when you look at that little thing, it's not exactly the Queen Mary 2, is it? It wouldn't take an awful lot of swell on a lake to make you feel pretty vulnerable in a little craft like that. And almost certainly that's the kind of boat that these disciples would have been in. So yeah, this isn't Storm Eunice crashing on the Cornish uh, shoreline. But for those disciples, this was a real storm that scared them. And as Jesus steps into the chaos of that storm, 
he takes charge. There are four kind of takeaway things I want to give you from the text this evening. I just want to, um, for the sake of integrity, acknowledge my debt to Tim Keller for this sermon. Quite a few of the insights are from a sermon of his. First is, Jesus is sovereign because we see him here walking on the rough water. Verse 19, when the disciples had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, walking on the water, walking on these waters which symbolized chaos. And yet there's no panic. The waters don't sink him. He is totally in control. And that's the real Jesus. And the Jesus, of course, that we need to know when our lives are plunged into that chaos within chaos and we feel we're going to sink. Jesus enters the storm. He walks over the storm. He isn't phased. We can trust him. He's sovereign. Now, just speaking personally, this is quite a big thing for us right now with frankly, quite painful endings for us. We're going to miss this place hugely and with lots of uncertainty because we don't know what we're going on to. It does feel a bit chaotic, but Jesus walks on the water. He's sovereign over the chaos as we experience it. We're trusting him. Thinking of uh, Ali, who sometimes leads the worship here on a Sunday night. And uh, a month or so back, it was, uh, it was go live date for her, for this massive IT project that she was project managing locally. And uh, I had quite a bit of text contact with her while it was going on. And honestly, the stress and the hours and the unrelenting pressure, they were just unbelievable. And of course, Ali felt that desperately and deeply. But looking back, the chaos didn't sink her. Because Ali knows the Jesus who walks on the water. And he did get her through. And I want to say to you this evening, you can know him too. Let me be clear, not the Jesus who will always still every storm the moment we ask him. He's not some cosmic slot machine. But the Jesus who walks into the storm with us and walks on the storm for us. Jesus, utterly sovereign over the chaos. But then the second takeaway is, and I'm going to put it just very boldly and bluntly, Jesus is God. And that claim rocks our world. Let me explain. Imagine the disciples, they're rowing for their lives. They're not getting very far. And then they see Jesus coming towards them, walking on the water. And not surprisingly, they are terrified. But then verse 20, he says to them, it is I, don't be afraid. It is I, don't be afraid. Those words are ego, a me, mo Literally, I am, don't fear. I am, don't fear. Now, those words can perfectly legitimately just mean, hey, it's me, chill. That, that they could mean that, okay? And probably that's how the disciples first heard them. But if you come back to this passage, having read all the way through John's gospel, and then you come here again, you can't help reading those words slightly differently to that. Because go on through the whole of John's gospel, and you find Jesus repeatedly using this phrase, I am, I am, I am, I am the light of the world. 
I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. When you come back to this text and read those words, I am, through the lens of all that's going to come in the rest of John's gospel, you begin to see the journey that John has been on. Maybe he thought Jesus initially was just saying, hey, it's me, chill. But then he links it all up with all the other claims, all the other I am claims that Jesus makes. And slowly it dawns on him in the pattern of those words, the full impact of what it was that Jesus was claiming. Because those words, ego, I, me, uh, Amy, echo the name by which God had revealed himself to Moses back in Exodus 3. I am that I am. God, without beginning or end, self-existent, beyond time, contingent on nothing, constrained and conditioned by nothing. I am. And Jesus is claiming that divine name as his own. And if you're a bit suspect about John and whether he's historically reliable, sorry, you can't get over that that so easily because exactly the same words and exactly the same context are there in Matthew and Mark too. I am. Don't fear. And when you think about it, it's precisely because Jesus is I am, that they don't need to fear. Frankly, if the man who gets into into the boat with them is only a carpenter from Nazareth and hasn't even got his tools with him, then they should fear because the extra weight is just going to push the boat even lower down into the waves and put their lives in peril. But if the man who gets into the boat with them is I am, then for sure there is no reason to fear. Because he created the winds and is sovereign over the waves. But what are we going to make of these words? I guess it's true that even Jesus' critics generally acknowledge him as a huge influence on our moral landscape as human beings. But how do we deal with this great moral teacher claiming to be I am? Claiming that he can use God's name as his own. What do we do with that? It is still, I think, a claim that rocks our world. Because either we have to give up our ideas of the great moral Jesus because we recognize him as a serial liar or as mentally unhinged, or we have to accept his claim as true and reorder the whole of our world around the fact that in Jesus, God has stepped into human history and called us to follow him. Do you see the starkness of the choice? He's mad, he's bad, or he is God, as C.S. Lewis famously said. So what do we say? It's a life-defining choice that we can't really escape without abandoning our intellectual integrity. Who did get into the boat on that stormy night with the disciples? Was he just the local carpenter? Or was he who he claimed to be? The great I am who created the wind and the waves and you and me too. I wonder what do you say? Who is he? Or are you still on the fence? It doesn't really work to sit on the fence 
for this one. It's too big a claim to stay on the fence. What if he really is the great I am? And what if actually he's offering to get into the boat and lead you through the chaos as well? Will you say yes to that offer? Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is God. But then Jesus is also terrifying. And yet he ends our fears. Let me explain. It's really interesting that the disciples here, their fear actually isn't mentioned in the text until they see Jesus coming towards them in verse 19. So no doubt they were afraid of the roughness of the water. But it seems that they were afraid of Jesus too. How do we make sense of that? Well, Matthew and Mark say that they thought he was a ghost. But John doesn't say that. So maybe that wasn't the sole explanation of their fear. I mean, how does it actually feel to realize that this man whom you have been following so closely is actually walking on water? Put yourself in that boat and see the man walking towards you and realize it's your friend. How does that, how does that feel? I mean, this is, in the most literal sense, awesome, isn't it? Do you remember in Luke 5 when, when Jesus had brought about that miraculous catch of fish and Peter says, no, go away from me, Lord. I, I can't handle this. I, I'm a sinful man. See, it's actually terrifying to suddenly know that you are in the presence of total uncompromising holiness, in the presence of God. Because we are not holy, but sinful and flawed, as Peter himself realized. Jesus, when we see him for who he is, he's terrifying. So how do we deal with that if we want him in the boat with us? Well, there is an answer that we can deduce from the rest of Scripture, because Jesus did walk on this storm, but there was a storm that Jesus didn't walk on. This is where I'm indebted to Keller for this suggestion. A storm under which Jesus actually sank. Do you remember the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament who was rebelling against God by running away from his calling and he ends up sinking into the raging waters of the sea. Now, for Jonah, the waters were not only waters of chaos, they were waters of judgment on his disobedience. Jonah was getting what he deserved. And here's the thing, Jesus went into the troubled water of judgment for us when he died on the cross, and he didn't walk over that storm. He sank deep into it because all our disobedience was strapped to him. And there as he died on the cross, he took what we deserved. He faced justice on our behalf. He died for us, paying the price we could not pay so that we could be freely forgiven and reconciled to this God of uncompromising and total holiness so that we could live with him in the boat because all our guilt and shame have been lifted from us and rested on him and buried with him in the depths of the ocean. And so through his death, the Jesus who terrifies, 
comes to take away our fears and reconcile us to our creator. This leads us to the fourth takeaway, that Jesus is the rescuer who came to lead us to life. Verse 21, then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, I don't really know quite how that immediately works here. Kind of looks like there was another miracle, but we're not entirely sure. Either way, the significance of what goes on here is clear. See, centuries before, God's people Israel were escaping from their slavery in Egypt and found themselves trapped in by a strip of water, which they referred to as the Red Sea. But the Egyptian army was coming after them and certain death was closing in upon them. But as their leader, Moses, got up and prayed and lifted his hand over the water, a land bridge opened up and Moses led the people to safety through the sea. And now Jesus, as he takes the disciples safely to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is showing himself to be the ultimate Moses who opens a way through the waters of chaos and judgment for us so that we can walk with absolute security into everlasting life. This is how Jesus himself seems to me to interpret the incident in verses 39 and 40 of John 6, where he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus is the rescuer who leads us through the waters of chaos and judgment into eternal life if we simply put our trust in him, ask him to take away our sins and commit our lives to being his disciples. And the life to which he calls us, let me say, is not just unending life. I mean, to be honest, if that's all eternal life is, it sounds a bit dull to me, just unending life. No, no, it's, it's life of the age to come. It's eternal in that sense. In other words, it's real life. It's life in all its fullness. It's the very life for which God created us. It's life which is utterly satisfying with no curse and no disobedience and no destruction. Life with no mourning, sorrow, crying or pain. Life where every day is as glorious and beautiful and utterly satisfying as the first. That's the life for which Jesus rescues us. I first met Judith, that's not her real name, but I first met her a number of years ago sitting around my dining table at the beginning of an Alpha course. She was lovely, she was fun and bubbly, but even then it was clear that Judith's battle with alcoholism was on the verge of taking her life. She wasn't well. And Judith never did recover. But in her last, last year or so, Judith became a Christian, and I baptized her here right in the middle of lockdown, up on the stage here. A few months later, I spoke at Judith's funeral. And yes, she had died, but before her death, the troubled waters of her chaotic life had stilled. And in Jesus, she had found peace and love. And in the last months that I knew her, she was 
alive with his joy. And now Jesus, the rescuer, has taken her through death into life. And she's going to be with him forever. That's the kind of Jesus who is there. Can I ask, do you know him? Not just a Jesus who immediately solves all our problems, but a Jesus who is so much bigger and wants so much for us, so much more for us than we want for ourselves. The Jesus who walks on water. The Jesus who claims to be God himself. The terrifying Jesus who takes away our fear through his death. The rescuing Jesus who carries us through death and into real life. He stands before us tonight and promises that whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Will you come to him this evening? Maybe for the first time, inviting him into the boat, asking him to take away your sins and give you new life. Or maybe you've done that before, but things are distant and life is chaotic and you need to know that he's alongside you. Will you invite him afresh and say you're going to trust him through this storm? Whoever comes to me, this Jesus says, I will never drive away. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship you and Just in the stillness of this place, wherever we are in our particular journey, we ask, would we hear your voice beckoning us, calling us, come to me? And would you give us grace to come? Whether for the first time or returning to you, to come, to put our trust in you, to say, Jesus, please get into the boat. And pilot this boat now to lead me on to safety. If you want to make that response to Jesus this evening, just, you don't need any magic words. Simply speak to him in the stillness of your heart. Say that you trust him, that you're sorry for trying to live without him. And that you want him in charge of your life now. You put your trust in him. Thank you that we can go into this week knowing you as the sovereign Jesus who walks over the storm. The divine Jesus who created the winds and the waves. The terrifying Jesus who stills our fears through the cross. The rescuing Jesus who leads us to everlasting life. Amen.